This episode is sponsored by Truflation, independent economic and financial data in real time on chain at truflation.com and DYDX, the largest decentralized perpetuals trading platform. Check out the link in this episode's description for more information. Welcome to the Uncut Podcast with your hosts Stefan Rust and Omar Yahya. We're both entrepreneurs, investors in the tech and crypto spaces and have a diverse background in all things venture capital. In this podcast, you'll join us in one of our many conversations where we discuss tech, crypto, exercise, nascent markets, the structure of government, and how we can all move forward as a society. Super excited to be back. Episode three of season two. There you go. <laughs> it's a wrong podcast. This is not super excited. <laughs> no, it's uncut. <laughs> We're uncut. But I'm super excited to be back either way. You know, it's like, I still believe that this is the most exciting time to be alive. There's so much innovation going on, so much change, which results in huge opportunity, right? And if you look at most successful individuals, it's all been down to monetizing and taking advantage of the change that's been taking place preach and enabling the creation of value the creation of wealth through technology so last week we were talking about greedflation and this week we're going to go and talk in about a specific topic but before i start the topic this week is we last week we're talking about greedflation and specifically the use case in germany right And, and the article that we referenced and I just saw today on Twitter that somebody had announced that Germany is eliminating the energy consumption cap. Um, and I don't know, you know, it's like, so it, it, I, did, does that mean that the trial and the test in Germany did not work? I think all I'd say about that is, is basically the, the title of the article, you know, price yeah. controls don't work, right? Exactly. Caps don't work. Exactly. It's uh, it's uh, uh, the customer the customer ends up paying for it one way or another either through shortages or through expensive bills doing financial engineering where you collect taxes from people and use that in a slush fund that subsidizes energy costs later I don't think it's a fantastic idea I think uh, users should should be able to uh, front the cost of their bills there are ways to hedge against uh, I mean if you're exposed to a variable interest rate on your mortgage and the 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 central bank uh, uh, sends the interest rates or the nominal interest rates uh, are flying high. You're exposed to that. That that's the decision that you you have to live with, right? So um, the Bank of England, for example, has made it very clear, and and the uh, Rishi government, uh, number ten, made it very clear that they will not intervene uh, in order to reduce the impact of rising um, mortgage rates on homeowners. Uh, because they said that doesn't make any sense. How do you fight inflation while printing money? So yeah. at least somebody understood, understood, you know, basic classroom economics. Which is interesting. Um, another another sacrifice uh, for for the general people. But that set aside, you know, one thing that I'm uh, we wanted to talk about this time was really to have a look at. M&A in the crypto sphere, right? What does M&A across crypto land look like? And why we bring this topic up and, and, and as, as, as a conversation, we saw this week, early on this week, the um, 
investment on behalf of Reserve Protocol to acquire through governance a lot of the influence associated with Curve, Convex, and StakeDAO. And what do those three really have in common? They are liquidity pool farms or liquidity farms that really enable a lot of the um, exchange and opportunities for a lot of stable coins, particularly at least on Curve. Um, and then the ability to create multiple different types of pools that allow, which act in a way, a bit like a, 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 a fund, right? I mean, it's a, in a way, it acts sort of a bit of a fund and pays a yield and a return associated with that, that each of the protocols pay for in return for additional or third-party tokens. And, and ultimately, what the governance allows you to do is basically uh, redirect rebates. If you think of like a nominal exchange and that has sort of market makers, they, they go into uh, agreements with different market makers based on some KPIs. They say there's going to be some rebates if you guarantee liquidity. That's basically what hap what's happening here. As a governance shareholder uh, or as a governance voter, you basically are, are trying to vote on uh, which types of pools should be incentivized. So obviously, if you're, if you're carrying lots of inventory for one particular type of pool, then you want to sort of redirect that to you. That's basically high level what, what it means. And I love the term that they use. In order to help with the redirection, you're allowed to bribe the governance holders. So you build basically a bounty that you make and put aside in order to influence the voting of governance token holders. Yeah, this. I mean, people that, that participated in DeFi Summer 2021, yeah. um, Andre Cronia was very famous for implementing these protocols. Um, uh, basically, these uh, mini governance attacks. All, all that means is that you have a liquid token and you're able to use that to redirect the purpose of the protocol uh, in a way that's governed by a smart contract. So you, you know, there's no external approval needed. Um, but if you remember, like um, uh, Redacted DAO, if you remember all of the liquidity provision from like Tokamak yep. from 2021 and yep. 2022, I mean, all these sort of fun and games, um, these are the kind of games that people were, were playing at the time. <laughs> But this got us thinking of um, the paradigm of M&A in crypto. What does that mean? What does that look like? Structurally, yeah. how is this different from traditional M&A? Why would you do M&A in crypto? There are plenty of um, parallels, but there are a few key points that we want to discuss that are sort of structurally different. And it really has comes down to governance. It comes down to <coughs> the fact that uh, what does it mean for uh, people that own the token to say something about the operation of the protocol and uh, the operation of the multi-sig and so on and so forth. So that's sort of what we want to get into today. We we have a few canonical examples. One that happened recently in the last couple of months was the D-Hedge M-Stable uh, merger, acquisition, whatever you want to call it. Where it, was, it was a very basic uh, token swap and they moved over the control of the multi-sigs and so on. We'll touch on that later. But uh, we wanted to cover some of those points. So I think it's, it, it would be helpful to just high-level discuss what M&A looks like in general. So M&A, um, in the most basic sense, is when you, is when you have two separate companies uh, with completely different investors. Uh, sometimes they overlap, but in general, completely different. And there is economic value to be gained by merging the operations. And that economic value may, basically comes from either enabling uh, uh, or productizing 
uh, uh, revenue streams that didn't uh, exist before. So the, the sum is sort of greater, greater than the individual parts or by cost reduction, just basic cost reduction. You can imagine two companies um, both have uh, used separate accounting firms. This is sort of a, a trivial example, but let's say it's on the table. Two companies, they do identical things and they use the same, uh, use different accounting uh, back office, and then you merge them together, they have a bigger client base, and then they reduce the overhead for accounting. Uh, all of a sudden, the combined shareholders sort of make more enterprise value than they normally would. Okay. Obviously, they're typically much more complicated than that, but that's sort of the idea. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think, you know, you highlighted a couple of differences, and, and I think one thing that's really evolved since the DeFi summer has really been the, the VE33 model, right? I mean, it's definitely evolved significantly, and we've learned from Olympus DAO, which was really one of the, um, let's say, godfathers of this model and really defining it and driving it further. But one um, area is basically what does it mean? You have a token, you purchase that token, you stake it into a vault, and that vault has a time lock. So it's basically a time deposit, if you think about it. Um, you lock it in, in some case, up to four years, right? So you put your token, and then in return for having done that, you receive a VE equivalent token of whatever you've staked. So it'll which be is a liquid. V yeah, which is liquid, exactly. And that VE gives you then dividends. By the way, VE if you, if you think, stands for voting escrow. Yes. Yeah. So you escrow so, the, the, the collateral in the account, and then you get uh, basically a derivative important. that allows you to um, vote just based yeah. on that. Yeah. So now you have this escrow token. You actually also receive rewards for that. You fee receive fees from the protocol itself. Um, and it allows you to participate in votes. And the votes then allow the distribution of fees, allows for the distribution of rewards, allocation of the native protocol token set, etc. Um, and so that's, that's sort of how that model has worked. And what you've seen in the past, some of the earlier acquisitions, e.g. M-Stable and D-Hedge, or maybe even you go back when you had a DAO on DAO acquisition as big as Rari Capital and Fay Protocol, you know, really big stable coins and stable protocols that really merged, combined their treasuries and tried to, I mean, that actually was really a bit of a scam, so it didn't work out too well. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was named the multi-billion dollar DAO on DAO merger, right? It was like really one of the biggest, had a huge impact across the industry. And it was one of the significant, I'd call first sort of stable coin combination, right? Where stable coins generally have been struggling with the need and the acquisition of collateral. Um, and, and with the lack of liquidity in the market at the moment, how can I acquire collateral, which has been um, the big issue. And I think Rari and Faye saw that if they combined, they could do that. And I think M-Stable and D-Hedge saw the ability leveraging D-Hedge's portfolio tokens as a means to scale up the liquidity associated with growing M-Stable. Yeah, but see how in, in both these examples, the, the primary target here was liquidity was mm -hmm. how do I basically scale my protocol's liquidity using this sort of acquisition. On the other hand, you had something like uh, Polygon with Hermes a, a couple of years ago. Uh, Polygon yeah. has done a lot of these acquisitions. Yes, this was yes. very clearly for the IP. This, yeah. there, was no, there was no concept of, uh, of liquidity here, at least it wasn't relevant. 
the whole premise was we wanted to bring this under the umbrella. And then this was basically a cash acquisition style, yeah. obviously using tokens, but th there was no real prospect for liquidity or any sort of synergies. It was basically, let me acquire the IP wholesale. And so in that case, I mean, if you acquire the IP, what does that really mean? Because most of the protocols on in crypto are open source, right? If I acquire yeah. that IP, do I then just open source it to the community and build around Polygon with that IP? So, so we, uh, we we say that the that everything's open source. It's not. Actually, it's, yeah, okay. Yeah, if things are open sourced over time, yeah. Uh, but you, what you're really buying is the future IP that's going to be developed. So yeah. you basically give people uh, um, you give people some sort of cash incentive to come work for you, and then um, they continue to build on that IP. I mean, even just, I actually don't think that just open sourcing the IP immediately does, does anything because if it's sort of unfinished, which it was at the time, it continues to be unfinished. Um, the real value is having those people continue to work on it underneath the umbrella of your products. That's basically what you're buying. And you're buying that at a premium because uh, this was, you know, there was some significant IP developed in the limit where there's no IP developed at all. It's just you hire people, right? Let's say you, you just hire a bunch of engineers that weren't working on anything or at least worked on something very rudimentary and you're like there's really not much here so there's a low premium to this quote-unquote acquisition it's just a sort of hiring and yeah. on the on the other end of the spectrum there's a lot of ip or a lot of collateral and so you need to pay a much bigger premium yeah so 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 ip and then in what entity if you're set up as a foundation where do you hold the IP? Is there a development arm associated with the foundation and that development arm holds the IP until it's ready to distribute? And yeah, and then how is the interest aligned between a software development company and the actual protocol itself? That's a, that's a wonderful series of questions. Uh, the first one actually depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on how the company's set up. Yep. So, far, so far, most of this has just been um just pro forma it's it really doesn't matter because there's no there's no actual licensing or there's no like ip that you can take and sell to some third party yeah, exactly it's, it only basically exists to the extent that there is some sort of transfer yeah. right yeah. so so i wouldn't i wouldn't die on this hill that this is like true ip that could be valued in the market <laughs> by some third party right it's it's it's, it's not it's really it's human capital, really. It's human right? capital, you're, exactly. You're doing, you're doing, you're doing, uh, yeah. So you're acquiring human capital, really, right? The, the, the intelligence, the knowledge base, the insights and in how to tweak this. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Precisely. No, I mean, that, that's exactly right. And so, and how does it align with the protocol? Again, it's, it's because it's embedded at the human capital level, not really at the network level. Um, it, it's just basically people working on developing the protocol. You've bought human capital as a premium. And so to me, that's, that's super interesting, right? And, and what I found in the model, just before I go to the next step, right? But I found with the model that Reserve utilized with Curve, right? Whilst it's really expensive to acquire liquidity on Curve now, right? Um, and there's so many alternative assets out there from Maverick to Ramsey's to, um, you know, to Velo to, uh, you, and you name it, right? Lots of different liquidity pools uh, and, and yield farms where people can participate and get the community to vote. But what I found really interesting was that this acquisition, even though Curve has a fully diluted valuation of um, 200, you know, what's it? I think 500 billion, million dollars, sorry, million. 500 million, million. And so it's like huge valuation. They managed to acquire 
a large portion of that through acquisition of governance tokens. So the VE tokens. And that way, I don't even need to own all of the tokens. I just need to own all the governance tokens in order to be able to sway the votes and the direction of those specific protocols, which I thought was financially very creative. Uh, it actually reminds us a lot of uh, class A, class B type shares. Yeah, that um, may be, yeah. Because That's you have different preferences of shares that convert at a liquidation preference. That's basically what you're doing. Imagine you have a 10x liquidation preference on a class A share and you want, and that converts to 10 times of class B. So you buy, you, you acquire uh, one class A share and then you can, let's say you've you have the right triggering conditions. You can convert that at 10x uh, during a liquidation proceeding. So these types of, uh, these types of uh, scheme, um, scheme here does not have a negative connotation. This type of financial scheme is, uh, is, is quite normal. And yep. this brings us exactly to the point that we wanted to discuss, which is in crypto, where you basically don't have preferred shares, the only thing for a protocol that it sort of has to offer is a, is a governance token. token. Yeah. The, what emulates preference, right, or, or uh, some sorts of uh, stacking is the uh, distribution, the, ve the vesting schedule. That's basically what emulates um, uh, these uh, liquidation preferences or the, the sort of stacking preferences. So the reason is simple. If you have, if, if a single token, because it's fungible, gets a percentage of the voting right, depending on who vests quicker and at what time, the voting control sort of changes over time. So that was actually the original idea of having these tokens sort of vest with different uh, schedules is so schedules. that, yeah, so that people have basically different voting rights. I don't think to me, but I still feel that, 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 that this is a very emerging area, right? I mean, this whole sort of in crypto, we haven't seen too many successful mergers and acquisitions or, or transitions, um, successful ones and maybe less successful ones. But, um, but you see that in the real world as well, right? You see acquisitions that work out well, and then you see other ones that don't work out well. Um, and so to me, I think there is a certain skill set in terms of interpreting, you know, like you just did, right? Saying that a governance token could be a different class of shares, which actually it is, right? I mean, and you're having two different classes of shares, which we haven't really seen in the past. Um, and I think also the other element is really the lockup. I mean, what we've seen four years lockup and maybe people just want to exit out right now in a bear market because it's easier and I don't want to wait through the next four years. Maybe I need it for liquidation or investing in other assets and I want to sell out. And so you can then go out and acquire at a cheaper rate if you're willing to just hold out the four years. Yeah, and now, now you have a, uh, a lot of these protocols trying to do secondary market for tokens that haven't invested yet. Basically, the ability to do secondary sales. Yeah. Which again exists in the traditional world, no problem. Yeah. But you 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 need some sort of matchmaker. You need somebody to find a willing buyer and a willing seller. You negotiate the conditions, which also exists in crypto. But there are people yeah. trying to do this sort of on chain. In fact, these ideas, funny enough, uh, I've thought about them in the past, and um, I'll link to an article that I wrote uh, probably six months ago uh, about uh, uh, this topic and and then some. Basically, it's in the chat, and we'll link it in the notes as well basically describing the parallels between uh, liquid governance tokens and different preference stacks in traditional venture and 
what you would need to change about the token structure today to sort of emulate some of these conditions. Nice. I haven't seen that before. <laughs> oh, you have now. <laughs> I have now. Awesome. Yeah, no, really cool. Um, yeah, so so I, I suggest read this because I think there's going to be a new breed. Given what's happened in the last week in terms of new entrants into this market through you know, the, all these institutions coming in here, it's only a matter of time before we see more investment banking, advisory services come in to help specific protocols scale up, acquire liquidity, um, and, 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 and grow in this marketplace. And yeah, I definitely see there's a huge need for that, given the engineering talent you have in this industry, yet the, uh, the financial acumen on the trading side, but very little in, in the bridge between the two. Well, precisely. And I think the the other aspect that we haven't seen much of, which I think is going to be extremely valuable um, and pervasive, is when you want a slow change of your business model without unwinding the project. You developed enough social capital or generated enough revenues as a, a, a protocol of a, a particular type and realized maybe there's no long-term product market fit here. And I want to sort of shift um, my, uh, um, my revenue lines. But I want to capitalize on what I've done in the past. I don't just want to be a, 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 you know, a new founder of a new company. I want to say, listen, we've built this multi-billion dollar nominally uh, uh, thing. And now we want to start to absorb some new functions. And maybe they become the new revenue lines. And a, a, a very good example of this, which uh, um, is surprising to, to a lot of people. I, I, mentioned it to, I mentioned it to most people so far, and they continue to be surprised. The Nasdaq... Um, which is one of the OG uh, exchanges, acquired for, I think, 10 billion, 50% equity, 50% cash, Adenza, which is a yeah, yeah, third, yeah, yeah, third yeah, party. Yeah, yeah I, I think we, we, we discussed this we maybe offline. We talked about that last time. Yeah. Oh, we did, that. yes. Yeah. So it's, it's the same thing. You, uh, you basically have one of the biggest and oldest exchanges in, in, in the world. The majority of the revenues is actually not even coming. It's not related to trading. It's actually related to servicing third-party clients on the compliance side, on the data vendor side. That's very, very interesting. They want to say, listen, we're a big player in the space. We've done a lot in the space, but it's clear that we want to change our business model somehow. And so one way to do it is obviously to develop internally. Another way to do it is to find some sort of synergies and having the client base that already have, obviously, they have an enormous client base, if, if, if biggest, if not one of the biggest. And so their ability to just one-click deploy a solution that handles back office and uh, data and compliance and in a way that increases their uh, revenue as well as maybe fattening the margins, that's very, very interesting. And it might be worth the bet. I mean, that's an enormous uh, bet that they made. They sold 15% of the company plus $5 billion, uh, in debt. So it's, yeah, a, it's a non-trivial acquisition. Right, <clears throat> right after we spoke about that, I walk into... Um, yeah, an office building, and on the you know on one of the floors, I see guess who's there? Refinitiv, right? And Refinitiv right. is what we're doing at Trueflation is they're doing in the real world, and we're trying to bring that on chain. And so, and then I, I out of total coincidence, I go in the same elevator <laughs> as the individual, you know, as the head of Refinitiv Switzerland, and he says, "Oh yeah, I love what you guys are doing. It's really cool." And so, and it turns out, Refinitiv used to be a Reuters company. So it was incubated and mm -hmm. built out of Reuters. They spun out and became an independent entity. 
because Reuters was restructuring, etc., and then they offloaded that entity. And guess who then ends up acquiring them? The London Stock Exchange. So it's like it was really interesting how you know we were talking about Nasdaq and Adenza, and then we were talking, and then boom, next day I walk into an lift lobby, and there is London Stock Exchange acquiring um, Refinitiv. So it's like. There's definitely there's some play with the synergy. I've got all this data. I've got all this exchange information. I want that index, and I want to incentivize news and insights in order to get trading transactions going on the actual platform. And again, that, that, that's what m is all about. But the, the name of the game is, can you get it at the right price? And can you yeah, ultimately monetize that? I mean, yeah. there are, there's a graveyard of M&As that we just don't hear about because they've gone yeah. nowhere. In yeah. fact, some of them have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Facebook has sold some of its M&A acquisitions for 70% uh, discounts on the market because they weren't able to do anything with them. There's a ton of Amazon uh, uh, acquisitions as well. The biggest one by far is the... Um, the Figma one, which continues to be blocked in, in the US and Europe, or, or at least they're being investigated for um, oh, with Adobe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was that was enormous. I think it was something like some twenty billion dollars. I think the biggest private market acquisition in the world, or in history. So um, you have to you have to wonder: Can you generate that much value uh, at these yeah. prices? I mean, if you look at Microsoft, Microsoft's been acquiring companies left, right, and center, right? They bought Minecraft. They bought um, well, LinkedIn. They're, they're trying, they bought, trying to buy uh, Activ uh, Activision. Activision. Yeah, That's, which, of which, course, uh, being blocked as well. The, uh, the one that was uh, shocking to me, or the series, yeah. was the, the, biopharma the uh, biopharmaceuticals. Uh, a, a very mm -hmm. nice statistic. Do you know how much... You know the business model of, of um, because of the way the FDA works and because of yep. the 20-year horizon of the patents and because of yep. the extreme cost, upfront oh. cost that you need to develop. Yep. Do you know that basically the only major liquidity scenario for these small far, uh, biopharma startups is to get M&8, right? Get That's basically the only thing. Yeah. Um, do you know at the end of this year how much of um, biopharma's uh, revenues are up for grabs because the patents expire. So basically how much of the current revenue line is at risk? Can you guess? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I should say, given the question, I would just assume it's a big number. So I'd it say it's like 20% like or 30% or something like that. But it's 80%. What? Yes. 80% of revenue is at stake. Wow. Because, because of the uh, expiry of these patents. So you see that M&A is the life and, and soul of biopharma. Gee, that's huge. 80% of revenue? Yes. It's enormous. It was just in the Financial Times. If you Google it, it'll show up. It's, a, it's a, it, it, the largest uh, in the last decade oh, wow, by absolute and relative value. So you see how important M&A is in certain, in certain uh, uh, verticals. Wow, I mean that. I mean, okay, I, we could go into down a whole rabbit hole there, but but yeah, acquisitions are really important there, right? I mean, it's always been the case in pharma, and anyway, for any startup, they can't wait twenty years or go through the whole approval process, which is extremely costly, timely, and 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 and, and legally, you know, form and compliance and all of that just to get approval on a drug. 
um, how as a startup, you just it's 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 ruining, right? And especially if you're a bunch of scientists that have spent all your money in trying to innovate in in a drug. And then all of a sudden, I need, I need to double or quadruple that investment in the innovation into securing approval to release this product into the market. Precisely, which is, I mean, the, the biopharma model now is basically venture backs the risky uh, uh, R&D Scientists, that's completely yeah. outsourced by the bigger biopharma companies. And so, then yeah. the ones that sort of make sense are bought at a premium. And they're bought wholesale. They're literally bought wholesale. They yeah, typically yeah. actually are unrelated uh, uh, product lines. Like one is, you know, NSAIDs. The other is some other type of ste like steroid for whatever. They're typically completely unrelated. But because the capital structure is such that these uh, uh, big pharmaceuticals just cannot be cost effective in terms of doing this in-house, they have to outsource that to the venture market. Crazy, man. Just really, really... Really exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, the, the the difference though in 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 a physical world and in a software world and then in the crypto world comes down to one thing, a, a couple of things. But I think one thing to me is really interesting. If you merge, I've built two separate protocols on maybe a, a, the same chains, maybe different chains. And they are both immutable, right? They're blocked into smart contracts, unless I'm building a whole layer one or something like that. But I have now got two different protocols on, on a chain, both immutable. In order to merge, does that mean that V2, V3 of each of these protocols merges and is redeveloped and redeployed as a whole new protocol? And then you get to upgrade across into that? Um, you know, ha, ha, you know. So your actual physical registration is not a piece of paper anymore. It's your smart contract well, written it's, it's, on a blockchain, it's, right? It's really just a multisig. The control of the multisig. It's, it's just a multisig wallet. Yeah, that's basically yeah. it. You transfer ownership to multisig, yeah. and Bob's your uncle. And yeah, and then multisigs. I mean, I was just at a conference here in Zurich on Tuesday around account abstraction, where you actually write, <laughs> write. <laughs> It was a really geeky. I mean, it was definitely all developers. Why, why are you why are you calling this geeky? This is sort of a, one of our prize and joys. Account of I know, I know, I love it. I love it. This is the, we had. A, I had a huge geek fest, so it was really brilliant. We were talking about Chrome jobs, and we were talking about, uh, yeah, you know, pre adapts, prepaying gas fees, and things like that. That's right. right? That's right. Um, all of these things that are really important for a user experience. Exactly. And then the biggest difficulty around, not multi-sig necessarily, but the account abstraction layer is basically you're writing the wallet into a blockchain as a smart contract. As a contract, exactly. As a contract, right? And then yeah. all you're doing is abstracting that account into a wallet. So your private keys are actually in the smart contract. Yeah, the, the idea the idea is now that as a when a person signs a transaction, uh, uh, Stefan just got back into his uh, lifting routine and his uh, his uh, muscles oh, are quite sore. It's like I so sore. So he's, he's being a child about it. I was telling him he just needs to stick to his routine. At any rate, um, you now you uh, no longer uh, are confined to just signing transactions or approving certain transactions. You can approve arbitrary logic that's embedded in a smart contract. That's sort of the great idea. Yeah, which is yeah, that yeah, 
Yes, yeah, so my, my hypothesis for gas fees, amongst a lot of other things in crypto, that they will be completely and uh, and ultimately abstracted away, so that in ten years users yeah. will not even know what gas fees are. Mm -hmm. In the same way that um, in most companies, server costs are just absorbed into exactly. the PNL of the company that's providing the service. Gas fees will be absorbed uh, uh, into the PNL of the protocol, and uh, users will just not have to worry about any of these things, dust in the wallets, and and you know. This, uh, ch the chicken and egg problem. How do I get Ethan to a fresh wallet, right? And then uh, ultimately, if you don't, exactly, exactly, which actually I did have on, on, on the ZK Zinc. <laughs> oh, you did? <laughs> I did have that problem. It's like, oh my God, how do I make this happen? <laughs> anyway, but, but either way, I think it's, it's you know, it, yeah, those will go away, except if gas fees are $40 a transaction, then you've got a bit of a problem, right? And that's why we've seen this huge evolution of block space blossom, right? And, and allow for lower cost per transactions that so much so that it's actually affordable for dap to include that in their services and prepay it on behalf of users and and the rise of derivative markets for for computers yes. for box space right? right the same way that at aws now you have you basically have a derivatives market for uh locking in long-term contracts right if you want good pricing on aws you say i commit to using prepay. this for six months prepay <clears throat> and you'll get a different pricing than or even you're guaranteed yeah. i mean today if you wanted uh, you know cloud gpu access uh, it's basically for certain applications it's basically impossible no it doesn't matter how much you're willing to pay so the name of the game is how do i hedge against the same when you produce oil yeah, how do i how do i lock in my prices today i was able to produce a barrel at, at you know uh, five bucks in saudi arabia i'm producing barrels at five bucks i want to lock in my sales at 70 exactly. bucks. so i go and get a, into a derivatives market and get a swap or get usually a futures contract uh, uh, that enables me to sort of capture that uh, that profit. And we were just talking about that the other day, right? I mean, if you're if you're a supplier, let's say you're a supplier to a big car manufacturer who's shifting to EV, and you've got a con contract for three years, you know exactly what, for example, your copper co your copper demand is going to be like for the next three years in order to meet that supply. Um, and, and can you hedge yourself against the price of copper and the influx in the, in the event that it should go up or down, right? That's in the real world. And I think what you're seeing is a much more financially astute set of individuals and businesses that are burgeoning out of this crypto landscape because you're much more treasury oriented. Your, your biz, everybody is invested into the actual protocol or the business itself. Everybody's paid in the in a token set out there. And as block space grows, you're also incentivized. You know, we've just been approached by one blockchain, a layer one, that want us to launch on their blockchain. It would require two, three weeks of man hours uh, man time, man days, um, to get <laughs> that going um, in terms of resource. And, and at the moment, everybody in crypto is busy, right? We don't, it's, 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 it's been a bear market. It still will be a bear market. We've seen a little uptick, which is great, but it's still a bear market. And who knows how long the bear market's going to last. Um, but either way, so how, um, where am I going with this? I mean, I'm just trying to emphasize that <laughs> I am now negotiating a way that you give me free block space, <laughs> so I don't pay transaction fees you, for a certain period of time. Or you guarantee you guarantee exactly. a certain price of execution. Exactly, um, and 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 obviously maybe there's a grant that comes across the line with that, but we will reinvest that grant in growing the ecosystem together. 
So we'll leverage yeah, our data and we do a hackathon uh, together and they build on top of yours and then we have a bundle package of, of block space. That is a very coarse and bespoke model, hopefully with the rise of yes. account abstraction yeah. and the ability yeah. and, and the rise of vertically integrated app chains, you yeah. have this elasticity uh, to do all of this on chain without these yeah. sort of guarantees, without asking for a grant. Because by the way, I first of all, I don't think grants work for a, a very simple reason. Uh, the majority of people that go for grants uh, are are after yes. <laughs> it's not that they're taking money and running per se. Yeah. It's just that the the grants are not priced correctly. So how do yeah. you effectively price grants? Well, you you embed them on chain, okay, and you have some sort of uh, KPIs that allow you to access that capital so long as certain milestones are hit. All of this is now was very crude in the last few years. Now with account abstraction, with vertically integrated app chains as the as the sort of a predominant scaling solution individually on the app level. Um, I think it's going to open up that market. And with a, uh, a, a hedging market or a derivatives market for block space, I think all of the pieces are coming together for how to, to actually run a company and build a product and deploy it on-chain and make money while uh, solving the economic calculation problem, which just means that you know I have to basically do the calculation of the PNL, the projected PNL now, and then execute on it in the next six months. So the economic calculation problem is coming to blockchains. Yeah. Coming to a blockchain near you. Near you. Um, I, I, I do believe grants. I mean, I, I coming from the entrepreneur and the builder side, I do believe that grants actually do work. Um, but they have to be, like you said, they have to be coupled to the protocol itself, right? So mm -hmm. what am I going to do? How are the KPIs tied to that, right? I don't want to just build and, and go, which happened in the past. Or I did huge amounts of hackathons and and then everybody build. Why? Because they were hoping to win the prize and get the grants and then build and then they would go somewhere else, right? And build yeah, it's it a, it's, a, it's a pricing problem. Yeah, At the end exactly. of the day, it's a pricing problem. Yeah. So if the if you price it too low, you don't attract the, the right crowd. If you price it too high, you're wasting money. But how do you do this? Well, you need a market for it. It can't just be sort of bespoke. It can't just be, well, you know, just based on my estimates of uh, uh, the cost of developers or whatever, right? There has to be a robust market for sort of doing so. Yeah, and I think, I mean, not only, yeah, the robust market. and But I mean, ultimately, I'm, I'm, I'm investing. We, we both got to invest in a relationship going forward, right? And mm -hmm. if I'm going to build a gas station next to a highway and you're building the highway, I want to know that you're going to have enough traffic coming through there, right? And so how do we jointly promote that element, right? That, that you're going to, we're going to get the traffic to come through there, which means that, you know, I, I, that's the kind of model and the thinking that I think we need to get to in crypto, um, which which is happening already anyway, right? I mean, um, yeah, but it, yeah. It, all, it all starts and ends with with how you generate long term value. Okay, and that's that ties us back to the M&A conversation. How do you generate long term value? What are the prospects? Yeah. And how do I use yeah. that to price the current investment, whether it's a quote unquote grant, whether it's a subsidy, whether it's clearly an investment and acquisition? One thing is, <clears throat> from your standpoint, what is the one, if you were to highlight and summarize into one key metric that matters for, um, a, 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 let's say, a layer one? I mean, what would that, what would that one key metric be that really matters to you. I mean, it also depends on the stage of evolution. Um, so it's very hard, to, very hard to specify. But I always try to find one key metric that really matters 
to me, and maybe it's just for a year, right? Maybe it's just for one year, you really want to grow the community. And the next year, it's like, how do I convert that monetize? So the conversion ratio matters, right? The first commu- acquisition ratio, right? So you always have specific ratios that you look for or metrics that you want to drive. And I think if you have like 10 metrics, nobody remembers that. But everybody remembers yeah. one metric, right? And, and, and the North and, Star. And- at the end of the day, and uh, this is a, a, an absolutely beautiful question, and and the answer, of course, like uh, per usual, is it depends. Yeah, but exactly. uh, but at a at a thirty thousand uh, uh, foot level, what are these blockchains? They are constrained computation environments, and ultimately, the uh, fees that people pay to use this network is yep. it, it, it refers to the willingness and ability of people to use the network. It's, it's yep. basically that simple. What are you in, in the limit that you're just running a single, let's say you're, there's a single node that runs a network. There's nobody else. It's just a single centralized node that runs an entity. The fees that are charged over time and the total revenue accumulated from that fees over time is basically a reflection of the willingness of people to use the network. At the end of the day, that's all that's going to matter. A, a network that, that doesn't do anything and doesn't secure anything, it doesn't facilitate anything, you don't expect people to sort of pay fees to. Now, of course, there's a lot of ways to gain fees in the short term, but in the long term, if you just had a box or a, or a treasury contract that you deposited fees into and nobody, let's say, for, for no, nobody had access to these fees, let's say this was just a, a black box that denominates, uh, is denominated in, uh, let's say, USDC or in Ether or whatever, and... Uh, all of the, the transactional uh, value, let's say it's a, it's a single node operator, all of the revenue that's generated is just placed into that box. The value yeah. of that box is that metric. Interesting. And, and it depends on your business model, your your, your focus, your your stage all, of evolution, all the so all many variables. All of which is right? aggregated basically yeah. into, the, into the gas price or into it, the, it's the price of compute. Right. Yeah. This. What is. You, what are you offering people? I'm offering people a decentralized, a permissionless, essential persistent network to yeah, do that, to true. do stuff on. Yeah, that yeah. stuff is a very limited subset of applications. If you are, if that is valuable enough to you, you will do it. There is a reason why people in DeFi Summer would pay a hundred dollars for a token swap. Why? Because the perceived utility from that was more than a hundred dollars. It's not that people were sitting there deciding. I mean, the same person who was sitting there deciding whether to add guac to their Chipotle bowl. Uh, was, had no qualms about paying two hundred dollars in gas fees. Why? Because the perceived utility is different, yeah. right? And I think that that also coming back to the the core topic of what we're talking about here, that's why you do an M and A, right? I mean, to help you accelerate your path on that perceived utility, right? If your utility is one growing liquidity in the case of M-Stable and D-Hedge, you know, or whatever, you know, in terms of getting acquisition through governance token or, you know, um, it is a acceleration on that path. Exactly. And, and that's, that's exactly really right. your belief in uh, the ability through that acquisition or merger that you can do that. Right. And, and whether you end up being successful or not, basically depends on how well you price it. And how well you price it and how well you execute on that and how well the cultures fit together. I mean, one thing I remember, I was on the Corp Dev team at Sun Microsystems. And when I was on that team, I mean, we, we, I mean our whole element was we had identified that the $1 you spend in acquisition, you need to spend 2 to $4 on integrations, Especially wow. the bigger the companies are, because you have different cultures, you have different perceptions, you have different visions, and it's if if they're big teams, 
big companies, big resources, different geographies, you know, different mindsets. You, you, it, it's very hard to actually integrate that into a, a you know, a sort of a whole supply chain channel, manufacturing, building. I mean, in the case, we were building computers as well, right? And so it's like you had to get the whole systems evolved and integrated and stuff like that. And it just took time was included in that $4, by the way. So it wasn't just monetary exchange. And yeah, the opportunity and people, cost as well. Exactly, exactly. Good. Because it distracts you from your day-to-day -day operations and your business. From your, right? your, your, your exactly your your main revenue streams. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So Excellent. we'll we'll leave it at that. And just before we go, I have a, a small uh, PSA. Um, the internet seems to be alight with this debate of uh, uh, if Elon Musk and uh, Mark Zuckerberg were to get into a cage fight, who would win? I am surprised by this uh, because, uh, in my mind, this is uh, uh, not even a contentious issue. And if you don't believe me, go back and watch UFC 1 where Hoist Gracie, I think he easily was like 165, 170 pounds, was fighting this behemoth of a man named Frank Shamrock, who was closer to a bodybuilder than he was a fighter. And it was very, very clear that the person who actually practiced jiu-jitsu, which uh, Mark Zuckerberg does, absolutely annihilated him. So there is zero doubt in my mind that uh, that uh, Elon Musk would pose a problem for uh, Mark Zuckerberg, but I would love to see it. And um, I don't know if you remember, and uh, this obviously was not a real fight. Go ahead. Did, did, you, did you see the Lex Friedman interview with Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, I did. This round two, and then he, they, they start did, yeah. off talking about jujitsu and, and stuff like that, right? No, listen, listen. Uh, Mark and Zuckerberg is a legit... And, yeah. No, no, he is a legit BJJ uh, practitioner. He's absolutely yeah. legit. Um uh, and for people who think that this is absurd, well, just remember that the 45th president of the United States, um, in a very uh, um, uh, entertaining uh, environment, uh, beat up, quote unquote, beat up Vince McMahon, another billionaire, and shaved his head. This was like in 2006, 2007 or something. If you don't know what that is, look it up. It is the funniest thing you'll ever see. Well, uh, there we have it. Um, another episode over. And thank you all for listening. And yeah, look forward to the next iteration. Stay tuned. Same time next week. Same channel. And always super cool. Um, and we'll have some other and new interesting specific topics um, that we can go on for hours about. <laughs> for usual. Uh, all right. Good. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. See ya. Bye, everyone. Oh, 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 oh,